Hey everyone, uh, this is Shy Goldman at Podcast 408. Uh, today is Friday, September 28th, 2018. Uh, there's a few things I wanted to uh, chat with you today about. Um, actually, three topics. Uh, one is related to limited partners, the, the folks who actually invest in venture capital funds. I also want to chat with you about a book I'm reading. Uh, and lastly, some thoughts about the angel community. Uh, so first thing, you know, yesterday I went to a limited partner meeting uh, for a venture capital firm. This is where they, they gather, you know, 50 or 100 limited partners in their fund, and they really give them an update on what is happening with their performance and the vision of the firm. I don't want to mention what firm this was at, but there's a trend. Majority of venture capital firms are really structured, or the actual funds, the underlying funds of the firms, the funds are are really structured as 10-year investment vehicles, meaning that at the end of 10 years, the limited partners hope to have their money back, at least some of their money back. It's, not, it's never guaranteed. But the trend that we're seeing now is that 10 years is really not enough time. A lot of these funds are really uh, 14 years to 18 years now in length by the time they give all the capital or the majority of capital back to the limited partners. And there's a few things driving that. You know, one is the IPO market is not that robust right now. There's, you know, 20 to 30 venture-backed tech IPOs happening right now, and I'm really excluding life science, really mostly uh, software, internet, enterprise software types, type companies who are exiting in that 20 to 30 number. So one is there's not a ton of IPOs. Uh, there's a fair amount of acquisitions, uh, but still relative to 20 to 30, uh, there aren't that many that are of significant size, north of a billion dollars in size. So really the, the challenge is that majority of these tech startups uh, are getting a ton of funding. And because they have funding available, they don't need to do their IPO. Historically, IPOs were really a funding mechanism. It was a way to raise capital and also provide liquidity for shareholders. Now, the, the venture funds are much larger in size, especially over the last five to seven years. Uh, there's many more billion-dollar-plus funds than ever before. These venture funds are looking to deploy their capital, and they deploy their capital and in, in growth to later-stage companies, uh, the companies that otherwise would IPO are now just raising additional rounds of financing or staying private longer, which really pushes out the liquidity event where someone either acquires this company or it IPOs you know, further down the road. So 10 years is a very short horizon for venture funds. It's, it's a long time for you and I, but in the venture business, it's not that long. So what happens is once the venture fund hits 10 years in length, it, what typically happens is they ask for you know one or two year extensions from their limited partners. Uh, it pushes out to twelve years, then once again there'll be another two year extension. It pushes out to four year, fourteen, and so on and so forth. So uh, this is a real issue uh, for a lot of stakeholders in the community. You know, the venture capitalists will also like to make some money, and they don't make money unless the limited partners make some money. So when you push the fund out to fourteen or sixteen years. It also limits liquidity available to the general partners who make the investments in the companies. So if they want to you know, make it big, or strike it rich as a general partner, you need more than 10 years typically. Anyhow, it's, it's an ongoing issue. This is discussed um, you know, you know, 
to a fair extent in the limited partner community, but just want to elevate that to maybe the everyday person in the tech world. And, and that really that, you know, cash in pocket for both the limited partners and the general partners is being pushed out dramatically uh, for most firms. Now, I'd say the silver lining potentially is that although the funds are longer in size or longer in age, there are liquidity opportunities uh, before then. And that's really in the form of secondaries, meaning that uh, existing shareholders, typically in the seed, A, or B rounds of financing, can sell some of their shares in future rounds, typically kind of series C, D, or E rounds. And so you can get liquidity, but rarely do you see a stakeholder, the the VC, liquidate their entire position in those growth rounds. They still maintain decent ownership and are still ultimately waiting for that IPO or acquisition acquisition to take place down the road. Um, anyhow, uh, if you have thoughts or comments, you know this is something that's been discussed uh, on Twitter in, in great length, at least in the limited partner world. Now, just to switch gears a little bit, uh, did want to chat about a book uh, that's pretty popular in the Twitter sphere. Now, one thing I really haven't mentioned in many of these episodes is that I'm pretty active on Twitter. It's a great communication channel for me. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Shai G. It's at S-H-A-I-G. I'll refer to Twitter a lot, but that's where I spend some of my time during the day. One of the books that was really uh, popular on Twitter the last few weeks is a book called The High Growth Handbook. And many folks, especially in the Bay Area, uh, have tweeted a copy of the book. And it's written by Elad Gill. He's a well-known operator and also angel investor in the Bay Area. The, the idea is really about scaling startups from 10 to 10,000 people. And I want to hold off on tweeting about the book until I really got into it a bit. I think a lot of folks received the book and just tweeted the copy of it, but I actually wanted to read it first before commenting. And I'm about a quarter of the way through the book. I actually like the way it's written. The format is you know, less of a standard you know, nonfiction book. It's, it feels more like you know, blog posts that are really put together. And each blog post, but here they call it chapters, is covering a specific topic where I feel there's kind of tactical information that an operator can think about and maybe change their behavior or change some of the way the company uh, is, is behaving. Um, and so I, I like the tactical nature of the book. There are kind of two parts that have resonated for me so far being a quarter way through the book. Uh, it's roughly 300 pages, so I'm about 75 pages in, so still pretty early. But one concept that was interesting to me was in page 41, which is really talking about you know skip-level meetings, which is a term that you know I haven't heard before, but I understand the concept of it. But the premise is that if you are an employee and you have a direct manager... Uh, you do a skip level meeting, meaning you get to spend time with your manager's manager. And, you know, 
I would venture to say that many organizations don't give you skip level meetings, you know, and it could be a couple of different issues. But I think as an employee, you know, it's, it's obviously great to have a manager, but you also want to have a line of communication when someone who is managing your manager and, you know, it's an executive in the corporation probably, and you want to spend time with them and hopefully they want to spend time with you. I think it's, this is mutually beneficial for all parties. One, you know, your manager's manager is somewhat removed from day-to-day operations and they're really relying on that manager to give them an idea of what's happening. But ultimately, the employee is the one who's really in the weeds. And I think the manager's manager uh, should have, or at least be curious as to what's happening at the ground level. This employee might have some uh, unique ideas. They're not necessarily being bubbled up to the manager's manager. And you know, for the employee, it's great to have access to executives. And so I think it's a win-win. But what I feel can happen sometimes is the manager, the person in the middle between these two parties, you know, doesn't want the employee to go above them. And it could be, you know, more of a confidence thing. Um, you know, do you want your employee talking to your manager? What if they have something negative to say about you? Um, people think, you know, about the politics of corporations when making decisions. Um, but I think it's healthy for, for all these parties to engage with one another. And it might be tougher to scale for much larger corporations where maybe the, this particular manager has 50 employees. And does the manager's manager actually have time to connect with 50 employees on a regular basis? Probably not. But at least from my perspective, you know, I have a manager and I have access to my manager's manager and I feel that manager is definitely okay with this. And um, we have structured meetings where we can connect and, and I think everyone gets something out of this. So to me, it was a newer concept. I, I never thought about it being called skip level meetings, but I understood the premise of it. And I wonder, you know, if you're doing this in your corporation or your startup, you know, why or why not? Um, and yeah, it sounds like some of the startups are doing this, but I think it's it's healthy for all parties. So uh, that's one portion of the book that I found I found interesting. The other one was really going to page forty-two, and there was an interview uh, with a person. Her name is Claire Hughes Johnson. And so part of the way this book is structured is there's kind of these blog post concept that I mentioned. They're tactical. And then you have you know, a portion where Alad Gill, the author, is actually interviewing people. Uh, Claire is not someone that I, I know, at least not a household name to me, but maybe other folks know who she is. But she has uh, you know, operation experience in scaling larger companies. And she does one thing that I found was interesting, um, and she actually put this in the book, or Allah did, and the concept really is to write a, a blog post or a letter to your employees, the people who report to you, or just people in your organization that are similar level as far as hierarchy or even above you, and the concept really is that you write a, a letter, and again, it could be a, an email or a blog post, and the, and the idea really is, you know, how can people engage with you? You know, how do you make decisions? 
How do you like to be communicated with? How do you like to communicate with others? How do you like to structure meetings? So you are telling the other parties, this is the way I think. Um, and if you read this post or this article about me, you'll have a better way to connect with me and, and think through how I make decisions. And, you know, I guess some people could take this as an ego thing. And I, and I kind of thought about that earlier when she mentioned she wrote this post because you're kind of like, you're basically saying, hey, like, you know, this is the way you talk to me. Um, but the more I thought about it, it actually seemed to be very positive because, you know, you don't want people to assume uh, how to engage with you. And everyone is wired very differently. And the way you communicate with one person is going to vary than the other. And so, you know, especially when you manage a lot of employees, I think it, it is important to, to vocalize um, and have, you know, a, a record of how you like to be communicated, something that can be com- circulated to new employees. And she, in, in the book on page 52, you know, Lod actually published um, this post and I think she called it Working with Claire, an Unauthorized Guide. I believe she might have published this online, so you could probably query this on Google. Um, anyhow, so, so far, uh, I have enjoyed the book. It does provide tactical information. Although I'm not a CEO, I'm not an operator of a startup, for me, it's helpful to understand you know, the challenges that operators and founders are going through. It allows me to be more empathetic to what they do. It allows me to engage with them uh, a lot better since I have this perspective, or at least I, I know their perspective a bit more. So to me, it's been helpful. You know, I, I think it is a worth a read. I, I'd really encourage everyone to read it. Um, and, you know, the other, I guess the one other part of the book towards, you know, again, I'm a quarter away through the book. A lot talks about, you know, board composition. And, you know, he covers a very topical item, which is board diversity. And so a lot of board of directors of companies are pretty uniform in terms of gender and ethnicity. Uh, I think right now it's pretty obvious it's pr- primarily uh, white males. And, you know, a lot encourages people to think about diversifying their boards which can be a very uh, can be a positive to the company. It brings a different perspective. It also br- provides a different network. And you know, I'm glad that he talked about it. Uh, and, I'm, I, and it's obviously a, a, something that's topical in the community. Uh, but it's nice that someone like him is thinking about this and is communicating in this book. Anyhow, I really recommend the book. I'm looking forward to reading the rest of it and hopefully commenting about this in future episodes. Uh, now, lastly, I just want to turn to another topic, which is, uh, you know, angels. And, you know, for those who might be aware, angels are typically people who, individuals who invest in early stage companies. Many times they might be in the first round of financing. These angel investors can write you know, anywhere from $10,000 checks to a couple hundred thousand dollar checks in size. Some can do much more than that. But I think that's kind of the the typical check size. And I want to comment about, you know, a tweet that um, 
Jerry Newman in New York had sent out. Uh, Jerry Newman is a well-known angel investor in New York City, and he wrote this tweet. I'm at a New York City angel breakfast. I'm pretty sure I'm the only active angel here. If you're an active New York angel, I'd love to get coffee with you. And this is not a New York issue, but I think it brings home the point that if there are a lack of angel investors in most communities, but especially in New York, and I think there's a few reasons for that. One is that historically, a lot of the angels who were active investors decided that they can actually raise a venture capital fund. So not just investing off their own balance sheet, their personal money, they decide that co they can cobble money together and write larger checks, probably have more ownership in companies and can manage other people's money. And so many of the people who were historically angels in the Bay Area, the very active ones were considered super angels. That was the vernacular. These super angels and angels decided that they could raise their own venture capital funds. So they're no longer angels. Now they're raising funds and therefore their check sizes have increased and they might invest later on in the company's life stage. Therefore, it kind of provides a gap in the market. These angels have now gone to a different direction. And so this is what's really happened is that many angels have created venture funds and it's created a gap in the market. And this gap is not only in New York, but there's gaps in Boston, Los Angeles, even the Bay Area where there's very, uh, there's obviously a lot of liquidity and exits and people with cash in their pocket. On a relative basis, the angel communities and all these geographies and, and other communities as well, um, it's a pretty small list. Uh, just to kind of double click on New York City, you know, from my perspective, there might be, you know, 10, 15, 20 active, you know, angel investors in the community. Um, and that poses an issue. I'd, I'd say, you know, the flip side to that is that many of the venture capital funds now, especially in New York and other major geographies in the U.S., you have this notion of kind of pre-seed funds who really are kind of filling in that gap for the angel investors. So they're writing small checks, 100 to 250K, and really raw startups that don't really have a product or service, maybe just a PowerPoint deck and just a team. So you do have pre-seed funds that are active that are kind of filling in the market. That being said, there aren't that many of them, and it would be nice to have more angel investors I don't see this problem changing you know, anytime soon. And again, you know, once these angel investors that are very active um, get some success or get some traction, they do raise a, a venture fund. And I think there are benefits to doing that because being an active angel investor takes a lot of time. It's something you can dabble, but the really active ones are spending meaningful time during the day, during the week, during the month, looking up at opportunities they need to meet with other VCs, ones that invest after them for follow-on capital for their portfolio companies. They need to network with um, stakeholders to get deal flow. So they're already spending a meaningful amount of their time. And I think their perspective is, well, I'm already spending a lot of time. Why don't I do this full time and manage other people's money? I could generate a salary through management fees. I could potentially make more money through carry because you're getting a, a percentage of a big fund as opposed to just getting the, the full percentage of your small checks. So 
it does scale and you can you can potentially make more money as a professional venture capitalist and that's why this is happening i don't see this changing anytime soon you know the only way this happens is you know a lot more liquidity a lot more exits new york is getting more of that there's certainly a good a scene in boston and los angeles um but over time, these these folks do become VCs. So those are my thoughts for today. Hopefully you enjoyed. See you next time.